Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hey guys, Nate Hale here. This is the second part of a special three-part series I'm doing. If you haven't heard the first part, The Gardener, then I recommend you go back and listen to that one first. We'll be right here waiting for you. And now, on with the show. Mary didn't like to share Charlie. But in the past, at least, most of the girls Charlie brought home never hung around for very long. That was different with this new girl, Lynette, though. At first, the three of them hung out in Barry's Berkeley apartment, smoking grass, dropping acid, and of course, listening to Beatles albums on endless play. But then things turned into something more, and before long, just hanging out had turned into Charlie and Lynette having sex while Mary watched, then to Charlie and Mary having sex while Lynette watched, to finally Charlie watching while she and Lynette went at it. It was far removed from the conservative Iowa upbringing Mary Bruner had experienced before coming to California. Pretty soon Charlie was driving them all up into the Los Angeles hills where they'd all take their clothes off and dance like wood nymphs while Charlie played the flute. But Charles Manson was a force that couldn't be denied. It was so worldly and wise. Mary wasn't the only one who saw that either. Lynette Frome hung on his every word like it was coming straight from the mouth of God. She told Charlie more than once that she wanted to stay with him forever. Where they would end up staying was a whole other matter, though. Mary's apartment in Berkeley was convenient to her job in the campus library. But Charlie was itching to move to Haight-Ashbury. That's where all the action was, he told them. And what Charlie wanted, Charlie got. One time when Charlie was out hitchhiking near San Francisco, he got picked up by a former congregational minister named Dean Morehouse. The minister took Charlie home to meet his wife and teenage daughter, Ruth Ann. It was obvious from the moment he stepped through the door that Ruth Ann had her eye on Charlie. He had an air of danger around him, one that only grew when he told her that he was an ex-con. When Morehouse found out Charlie was a musician, he gave him the battered old piano that had been collecting dust in one corner of his living room. But when Manson came back to claim the piano, he had zero interest in carting the heavy item all the way back to the hate. So he rolled it a few blocks down the street and ended up trading it with some guy for a rusting Volkswagen minibus. Now, Manson was not only mobile, but he had the room to take another five or six people with him. The first one he invited along for the ride was Ruth Ann. But Ruth Ann's mom quickly called the police on them, and the two of them were picked up in Mendocino just north of San Francisco. Ruth Ann was sent home, and Charlie was charged with interfering with the questioning of a runaway minor. He told the arresting officers that his name was Charles Willis Manson. Willis wasn't his real middle name, but when you slow it down and say it out loud, the meaning becomes clear. Charles's will is man's son. Charles Manson believed he was doing the Lord's work. Before the cops split them up, Manson put an idea in Ruth Ann's head about how to legally get away from her parents. If she just found some random guy and married him, 
that would legally emancipate her from her parents. Then she could desert her new husband, and she'd be free to rejoin Manson. Manson received a 30-day suspended sentence and an additional three years added to his probation. Ruth Ann hooked up with a guy named Edward Huvelhorst and married him. Then she waited until Charlie summoned her. In June of 1967, school was out and throngs of impressionable teens flooded Haight-Ashbury carrying peace signs or looking to score some acid. It was the summer of love, a time of change and of endless possibilities. A time when Charles Manson would begin to gather his family together in preparation for the bloodbath yet to come. I'm Nate Hale, and have you seen the little piggies crawling in the dirt? And this is The Conspirators. The summer of 67 saw the release of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And despite John Lennon's insistence that Lucy in the Sky with the Diamonds didn't really stand for LSD, the hippies who hung around the hate understood that the Beatles really got them. Across America, 33 race riots broke out in major cities, many of which required intervention by police and National Guard troops. Charles Manson saw this as a bright flashing warning sign that black people were getting organized and readying themselves for a major uprising. Though back then he never talked about committing acts of violence himself, he did occasionally give his followers warnings about the upcoming race war, telling them they'd need to be prepared. Manson tore the seats out of the VW bus, and Mary adorned it with rugs, pillows, and curtains to make it cozy for whoever ended up riding in back. It was through an old prison acquaintance named Billy Green that Charles Manson met 19-year-old Pat Cranwinkle a girl who'd been having a rough patch with her parents. She told Charlie life at home was unbearable. Her older sister was hooked on drugs, and her nine-year-old nephew who lived with them was a total brat. She just had to get out of there. Manson was happy to oblige. Charlie, Lynette, and now Pat hit the road looking for adventure. One thing that disturbed the girls early on was despite all Charlie's talk of peace and love, he always seemed to have knives on him. Sometimes he'd take them out in the woods and make them stand in front of a tree. Then he'd step back and throw a knife so it would stick in the tree just over their heads. Charlie claimed it was a trust exercise. If any of them flinched, it meant they didn't trust him. The girls were eager to please, so they tried their best not to budge. The praise Charlie showered on them when it was all over made it all worthwhile. But over the span of that summer, a darkness seemed to take hold in the hate. The streets smelled like urine, and up and down the block, stores were going out of business. Although there were plenty of hippies all around, they were, for the most part, hippies who never had any money to buy anything except drugs. You practically couldn't walk two feet without tripping over someone sprawled out on the sidewalk with a needle sticking out of their arm. The hate theater began showing a film by Kenneth Anger about British occultist Aleister Crowley. The show was accompanied by music from a group called the Chamber Orchestra, the leader of which was a fellow named Bobby Beausoleil. Anger's show never attracted enough ticket-goers to earn back the $700 he spent to rent the theater. Things went from bad to worse when someone stole the film canisters. Anger's main suspect was Bobby Beausoleil. Bobby fled the hate and headed to Los Angeles, where he met and moved in with a part-time drug dealer named Gary Hinman. Bobby and his then-girlfriend moved into Hinman's Topanga Canyon house, 
a place that would later be the stage for an event that sparked much of the carnage to follow. Since Mary was forced to quit her job in order to follow Charlie around, the four of them turned to panhandling and eating out of dumpsters to survive. Occasionally, they'd pick up some wayward soul with a wallet full of cash or their parents' credit cards, which they proceeded to max out. Charlie made love to each of the women and told them they were all beautiful. He'd preach to them and play his guitar for them. It was a happy time for the most part. Charlie told them they were all a family now, a real family, not like the ones they'd all left behind. He told them he worshipped and accepted them in ways that their biological families never could. But Charlie also demanded rapt devotion. If any of the girls acted like they weren't paying enough attention, he turned suddenly angry, lashing out by yanking their hair or even slapping them around a little. It wasn't uncommon to see one or more of Charles Manson's women with a black eye or other bruises. But despite the abuse, the women loved him, and Charlie claimed to love them back. He could show them a better way to live, he said. All they had to do was devote their lives to him. For months, Charlie practiced his guitar and scribbled down songs in preparation for the meeting he planned with the rep from Universal his friend Phil Kaufman from prison told him about. He needed everything to be perfect. His music, his look, everything. Manson had it all planned out in his mind how he'd impressed the guy from Universal so much he'd instantly sign him up for a major record deal and make him a star. But Manson knew for the look he was going for, he needed the right entourage. And despite how much he told his three women how beautiful they were, he knew they were all rather homely. He purposely sought them out because they were so plain and lonely. What he needed was a real look around his arm. A beauty that would make people turn their heads and really help sell his image to the guy from Universal. 20-year-old Susan Atkins was the only member of his tribe that Charlie actually recruited from the hate. Susan's mother died of cancer when she was 15, leaving her to care for a younger brother and a train wreck of a father who was perpetually out of work. Charlie had heard it all before. Susan was damaged goods, a good girl, and a former member of her Baptist church who turned to sex, drugs, and alcohol to deal with the pressures of her life. Susan left home when she turned 18, and she drifted through a series of menial jobs and abusive boyfriends before she caught Charles Manson's eye. She was working as a dancer at a witch's Sabbath club organized by Satanist Anton LaVey in Haight-Ashbury when she got invited to a party. There, she met Charles Manson, who dropped by with his guitar. She thought Manson was a guitar virtuoso, and she practically fell off her seat when he noticed her and offered her his guitar to play. If you want to play it, he told her, all you have to do is believe, and you can play it too. She only had eyes for Charlie after that. No one had ever believed in her true potential the way Charlie did. Mary Bruner became pregnant with Charlie's child. Mary was ecstatic. She thought for certain this was proof that she was Charlie's main squeeze. Over time, other women in Manson's group would get pregnant too, but they were never certain if the child was Manson's or not. Charlie insisted they have sex with a lot of different men, and he made them swear to never use birth control. It wasn't natural, he insisted. Besides, they'd need lots of white babies if they were ever going to survive the race riots still to come. In Sacramento, he swapped the VW bus for an old yellow school bus. He needed more room if he was going to collect more followers. That fall, they picked up a college dropout from Tennessee named Bruce Davis. There had been a few other guys in the group before him, but they all left when they decided the vibe among the group was a little too strange. Davis was an instant true believer. He swore his allegiance to Manson, 
and planned on staying by his side wherever he went. In November 1967, Manson finally arrived in Los Angeles. Just two years earlier, the Watts riot had broken out in L.A., causing more than $40 million in property damage and cost the lives of 34 people. Charles Manson was convinced that the Watts riot and others like it across the country were just warning signs of a bigger race riot still to come, one of apocalyptic proportions. He often warned his followers about the coming apocalypse, and when the Beatles released the White Album, he even took from it the name of the big event to come, Helter Skelter. To Manson, the White Album was a practical roadmap of future events. It was like John, Paul, George, and Ringo were speaking directly to him through their lyrics. After Manson got to L.A., he set up a meeting with Gary Stromberg, the rep from Universal that Phil Kaufman knew. Stromberg's job was to find new talent, and Kaufman's name got Manson a quick appointment. Manson showed Kaufman the tricked-out bus and sat him down next to his girls while he strummed his guitar and belted out a few tunes. Kaufman thought Manson had enough talent to try to set him up in a real recording studio to lay down a few tracks. But the recording session was a complete disaster. Manson couldn't get used to working around all the wires and microphones. He was angry and combative through the entire session. And by the time they were done, Stromberg told him maybe he should practice a little more and try him again at some unspecified point in the future. Stromberg didn't think his time with Manson was a complete loss, though. He actually had an idea to include Manson in a film he'd been working on that involved a modern-day retelling of the Bible. Charlie and Stromberg hung around one another for the next few weeks. Stromberg was impressed with Manson's harem of women, and especially with how devoted they were all to his every need. Eventually, the Universal executives would shut down the Jesus film after deciding it would prove to be too controversial. But Manson didn't mind. He still thought Stromberg was going to make him a star. Around this time, Charlie met Bobby Beausoleil, the musician from The Hate. The two of them got along well, and they actually formed a band together, The Milky Way. It was an uneven partnership. Beausoleil was both better looking than Charlie, and a much better guitarist. Beausoleil also introduced him to his roommate, Gary Hinman, who was a music teacher and part-time drug dealer. In December, Manson split from Beausoleil and Hinman for a while. Beausoleil wasn't a good fit for the family because he clearly wasn't ready to devote his life to Charlie. Plus, Charlie could sense some of his women were attracted to him. That he couldn't abide. So he hit the road again in the bus, and he toured the deserts throughout California, Arizona, and eventually Texas. Along the way, he became aware of some of the spiritual communes that were springing up all around. He liked the idea of having a compound all to himself with no one but his followers to worship him. When he returned to Los Angeles... He set Susan Atkins, Mary Bruner, and Lynette Frome loose on the streets and put them into full recruiting mode, looking for more followers to add to his family. During this time, they picked up an 18-year-old man named Paul Watkins. It became quickly apparent that Watkins, like Bruce Davis before him, also wanted to become Charlie's second-in-command. Manson let them both believe they had a shot, when in truth neither one had what he was looking for in a second. He also finally summoned Ruth Ann Morehouse to come join him around this time. She deserted the husband she'd married in order to emancipate herself from her parents and immediately joined Manson's side. Manson had an easy way with establishing dominance within the group. With the women, he did this through sex and by building up their self-esteem. With the men, he became a sort of father figure for them all to look up to. Once he got his hooks into them, then he'd use them for all they had. 
One of Manson's wealthier followers was teenage Dee Dee Lansbury, the daughter of actress Angela Lansbury. She never fully left home to join the family full-time, but she did cover all their expenses for a while with her mother's credit cards until finally Mom caught on and cut them off. Another thing Manson did to establish control was to get his followers to shed their sense of identity. Names were immaterial things, he told them. Manson's followers changed names as often as they changed clothes. Pat Krenwinkle became Katie, although for a while she also went by the name Kay Reeves. Susan Atkins changed identities many times before Manson dubbed her Sexy Sadie after the Beatles song, then Sadie Mae Glutz when he decided she was getting too full of herself. The very pregnant Mary Bruner became Mother Mary. A girl named Diane Lane became known as Snake. Ruth Ann became known as Uwish. And although some legends would claim that was derived from the sound of a blade slitting flesh, the name actually came from the number of men who made the noise Ooh-wee when they saw her. Lynette would remain Lynette for a long time, although later on she'd earn the name Squeaky from the high-pitched tone of her voice whenever she got excited. And Charlie? Well, he remained Charlie for the most part except for those times when he insisted they all call him Jesus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Manson's friend Phil Kaufman was released from prison in March 1968. He was thrilled to join up with his old pal Charlie and especially to take advantage of members of Charlie's harem. Manson had no issue with sharing his women just as long as he remained top dog. Kaufman introduced Manson and his followers to an old pal of his named Harold True. Harold lived in a rental house on Waverly Drive in the upper-middle-class neighborhood of Las Feliz. The houses in that neighborhood weren't mansions by any stretch of the imagination, but to Manson, who had grown up dirt poor and wasn't used to such things, they might as well have been. Manson and his followers visited Harold True's home several times before he moved in the fall. Not long after that, a couple named Leno and Rosemary LaBianca moved into the house next door. Kaufman would eventually split from Charlie's group when it became apparent he was never going to fall for Manson's pseudo-religious mumbo-jumbo. And although he was never going to become one of Manson's devout followers, the two remained in touch after he left. In April of 68, Mary Bruner gave birth to Charlie's son, a boy they named Valentine Michael, after a character from Hobart Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. But most everyone just called the baby Pooh Bear. In late spring, a couple of Manson's girls went hitchhiking along the Sunset Strip, trolling for recruits. When they got picked up by Dennis Wilson, a member of the Beach Boys and brother of group leader Brian Wilson, the girls had no idea who Wilson was. But when they told Manson about the rich guy that gave them a ride, he insisted they take him to him. At the time, the Beach Boys were in a creative slump. Record sales were down, and Brian Wilson, the main songwriter from the group, was living a reclusive life inside his mansion but Manson realized Dennis Wilson could be his ticket to fame and stardom. Dennis Wilson liked Charles Manson immediately. At the time, he lived in an English-style log house on Sunset Boulevard that had once been Will Rogers' hunting lodge, and he always had house guests coming and going. So he didn't mind when Manson moved himself and his couple of dozen followers in. 
He thought Charlie had some talent, plus he was fun to be around. Besides, he also liked how Manson would share his ladies with him. It was through Dennis Wilson that Manson would eventually meet a couple of record executives named Greg Jacobson and Terry Melcher. Jacobson was a talent scout, and he didn't think Manson was anything special, just another stray that followed Wilson home. What Manson had that Jacobson took an immediate shine to was Ruth Ann. And although Jacobson was married at the time to comedian Lou Costello's daughter Carol, he wasn't particularly faithful either. Charlie often paired Ruth Ann off with Jacobson, and the talent scout was eager to come around Wilson's home to hang out. Terry Melcher was a hotshot record producer who went on to work with groups like The Birds, propelling them to superstardom. At the time he met Manson, he was living in a house he rented with his girlfriend, actress Candace Bergen, up at the top of the hill on Cielo Drive. It was a house that would become famous several months later, after Melcher moved out, and film director Roman Polanski and his wife, actress Sharon Tate, moved in. It was while he was living in Dennis Wilson's house that Manson met a young man named Charles Watson. The young man hailed from Texas, so of course they all started referring to him as Tex. Watson was destined to overtake all the contenders to the throne and become Manson's second-in-command. But Manson's stay at Wilson's home proved short-lived when Wilson finally got sick of how much money Manson and his followers were costing him. Wilson's accountants informed him that the group had already burned through $100,000 of his money, including a huge medical bill for treatment of their gonorrhea and $21,000 for the destruction of his uninsured car. But even after Dennis Wilson kicked Manson and his followers out of his house, he remained plenty steamed about how much money they cost him. Wilson thought Manson owed him big time, so he had no problem taking one of Manson's songs titled Cease to Exist for himself, then changing some of the lyrics and the title to Never Learn Not to Love. At first, Manson gave his approval to Wilson to record the song, but under strict instructions not to change a thing. Manson assumed since none of his auditions had panned out, he'd still become a star once his song got reported by the Beach Boys and it hit the top of the charts. So imagine Manson's fury when the song got released as a B-side to the single Bluebirds Over the Mountain with a different title and Dennis Wilson being listed as a sole songwriter. Manson's rage only grew further when he finally got a chance to perform for Terry Melcher. And once again, things went badly. Melcher was unimpressed with Manson's music. He actually did set up a recording session for him, but it was clear early on that he had no intention of offering Manson a recording contract. By then, Manson and his followers had set up a base at Spawn Ranch, not far from Topanga Canyon Boulevard. Spawn Ranch was owned by 80-year-old George Spawn, and until the 1960s it had often been used as the backdrop for many Western TV shows and movies. In exchange for letting them live there, Manson and his followers did chores around the ranch for George Spawn. Also, Manson gave Lynette Frome to Spawn to service him personally. It was Spawn who gave her the nickname Squeaky for the way she squealed when he pinched her thigh. But although his followers loved Spawn Ranch, Manson was never satisfied with the place. He ended up splitting their time between Spawn Ranch and another place called Barker Ranch in Death Valley. The Barker Ranch was owned by the grandmother of one of Manson's followers, and the woman had agreed to allow the family to stay there if they agreed to fix it up. Manson sweetened the deal by giving her one of Dennis Wilson's gold records he'd lifted before leaving Wilson's home. Manson's followers hated Barker Ranch for how cold and isolated it was. But Manson insisted it would be the perfect place for them to wait out the coming race riots he called Helter Skelter. The problem was, the more Manson kept telling them Helter Skelter was going to erupt any day, 
the more it looked like that day was never going to come. Manson's people were beginning to get restless, and it was obvious things were beginning to fray on Manson's nerves. Terry Melcher completely wrote Manson off after he witnessed Manson getting into a brutal fist fight with one of George Spahn's ranch hands. This left Manson fuming and vowing revenge against Melcher. With Melcher gone from his life, so was Manson's last shot at fame and stardom. Over the next few months, Manson began instructing his followers that they would need to train themselves for the coming apocalypse. One thing he had them do was arranging themselves into small squads and sending them out at nights in what he called creepy crawls. The object of these creepy crawls were for the group to silently enter a person's home while they were sleeping. At first they would do things like move the furniture and other items around, then leave as quietly as they had come. One time they even burglarized the home of John and Michelle Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas. Later on they'd graduate to stealing cash, credit cards, and other valuables they could hawk. In the summer of 1969, Manson's friend Bobby Beausoleil showed up at the ranch wanting to join them. He brought with him his own mini harem of girls, including an 18-year-old girl named Leslie Van Houten, who would go on to become one of Manson's most devoted followers. By then, Manson and his family had also begun associating with a motorcycle gang called the Straight Satans. Beausoleil obtained a batch of mescaline from his former roommate Gary Hinman and sold it to the motorcycle gang. But it was a bad batch, and the straight Satans demanded their money back. Manson sent Beausoleil, Susan Atkins, and Mary Bruner to Hinman's home with orders to get the money back any way they had to. Beausoleil arrived at Hinman's place armed with a knife and a handgun, but Hinman refused to pay. So the trio held him captive and called Manson at Spawn Ranch to find out what to do next. Manson had taken to carrying a sword around with him that had been gifted to him by the straight Satans. When he got to Hinman's home, he used that sword to slice off a piece of Hinman's ear. Throughout the weekend, they held Hinman hostage, doling out beatings and trying to get him to hand over his money. But Hinman insisted he didn't have any cash. Finally, on Sunday night, Manson gave Beausoleil the order to kill Hinman. But Manson didn't just want to murder the man. He wanted to make a statement. Manson was still fuming that Helter Skelter hadn't arrived as he predicted. So he did what he always did when plans went awry. He improvised. He got the idea to stage Hinman's murder scene to look like the Black Panthers had done it. Beausoleil stabbed Gary Hinman several times. As the man lay dying, Beausoleil dipped his hand in Hinman's blood and pressed a crude paw print onto the wall. A paw print was the Black Panther's symbol. Surely this would start the race riot. Then Beausoleil added to the message by dipping a finger into the pool of blood and writing two more words on the wall next to the paw print. It said, Political Piggy. Beausoleil, Susan, and Mary went through the place and tried to wipe up any fingerprints they might have left. But they were sloppy in their cleanup, and instead of properly disposing of the murder weapon, Beausoleil hid the bloody knife in the wheel well of Hinman's Fiat, which he kept for himself and used to drive around town. Then Manson waited tensely over the next couple days for word of the murder to reach the public and for the violent uprising he expected to follow. Only it never happened. The story about Gary Hinman's murder barely made the newspapers at all, and the police never even considered the Black Panthers as suspects. Manson was furious. Then things got worse after Bobby Beausoleil began bragging publicly about what a bad guy he was and how he'd gotten away with murder. His big mouth would prove to be his undoing. 
Police got a tip about Beausoleil, and they soon arrested him for the murder. Not only had he confessed publicly to the murder, but they even found the murder weapon hidden in the stolen car he was driving. Beausoleil's arrest left Manson in a major bind. If Bobby spilled his guts about what he knew, he could bring down Manson with him. Manson had personally been there in Gary Himmins' house and had sliced the man's ear off. He didn't kill the guy, but Manson knew the cops wouldn't care. Manson had to find a way to get Beausoleil out of jail. Then he got another idea to not only get Beausoleil freed, but to this time certainly spark the revolution he'd been waiting for. Manson remembered the fancy house on Cielo Drive where Terry Melcher had lived. He'd already sent some people there weeks earlier to confront Melcher, and had been disappointed to discover the record producer no longer lived there. But if he couldn't get to Melcher personally, he could still raise Helter Skelter by killing Sharon Tate and every other living person inside. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening and for following along with this special three-part episode. Join us again next week for the conclusion of this tale, where we'll explore the Tate-LaBianca murders, as well as some other lesser-known murders that may be connected to the Manson family. Just a reminder, if you're interested in supporting the show, we are on Patreon, where you can get access to all sorts of great bonuses like t-shirts, stickers, magnets, and our exclusive minisodes. I also invite you to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Every one of your reviews helps spread the word about the show and boosts us on the Apple site. If you're not on Apple Podcasts, not to worry, we're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and your favorite podcast app. We're also always available on our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again, and I hope you'll join us again next week for part three of the series.